a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. Out there, the precariat is growing. Do you consider yourself militant? I consider myself Malcolm. Because the owners of this country know the truth. It's called the American dream, because you have to be asleep to believe it. What's up, people? Welcome back to the Precariat Podcast. <laughs> it's it's been a while. Let's just let's just get that elephant out of the room. It's been a while. Um, I have a lot going on, but yeah, it's just an excuse. Um, uh, I'm gonna try to get these on a more regular regular uh, schedule. I'm try to do them weekly. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, there's that. But this week, um, I want to talk about North Korea, right? So that's what this episode's about, and. Um, um, you know, a lot of people, it's been in the news a lot. So that was one of the reasons and Trump is provoking them. And I mean, he's provoking everybody at this point, but, um, there's this writer named Milan Kundera, um, who once wrote the struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. And I really like that quote because it, it really is a true statement. You know, if people had a real memory of past abuses of our society at its worst, we probably rarely be kind of the same old mistakes again and again and again, right? So um, as soon as history is forgotten, the history book really becomes less of a cautionary tale for society and more of sort of a guidebook for the corrupt, right? And really, in the case of North Korea, uh, you know, that's the situation in terms of North Korea and its relationship with the, with the U.S. And so uh, the war that the U.S. fought against North Korea uh, is actually nicknamed the Forgotten War, right? And that's because no one talks about it, right? It's sandwiched between World War II, which ended in 1945, and Vietnam. And uh, really, it's remarkable that it is so forgotten because it's one of the U.S.'s deadliest wars ever if you you know do the total body count, although in the U.S. we only count American soldiers, right? So, but... Um, When's the last time you heard about a Korean War memorial, right? You're always hearing about a Vietnam memorial, a World War II memorial, you know, honoring the veterans of those conflicts. And I'm not trying to, um, you know, pit one conflict against another or anything like that. But I'm just saying, you know, you these other wars are commemorated, but the Korean War is, is just never really mentioned, uh, despite being such a deadly war. And I think one of the reasons it's never really mentioned is precisely because it's, it was so unnecessary and sort of openly barbaric. Uh, this was really the U.S.'s first conflict post-World War II, right? So World War II ends in about 1945, um, and co- the Korean War runs from 1950 to 53. Uh, although, you know, there had really been conflict since the end of World War II in 1945, but it doesn't uh, boil over into a full-blown, all-out war, although... Uh, Korea might might disagree with that until you know fifty to fifty three uh, was sort of the formal years of that war, but um, this was you know just to kind of set the scene, you know the U.S. comes out of World War II in nineteen forty five, 
all the great powers of Europe have been destroyed militarily and industrially. Uh, America's rival in Japan has been crushed under the two nuclear bombs they dropped on them, right? So the, for the first time in U.S. history, the U.S. is the superpower on Earth with absolutely no rival. They can do anything they want and get away with it, and they did. <laughs> so, so with that stage, stage sort of set, uh, the U.S. was intent on stopping communism from communist governments from spreading across Asia, and really more importantly to them, establishing a foothold to sort of wield their geopolitical power and also uh, to give American business int uh, interests access to Asia, right? And so uh, prior to World War II, Korea had been a client state of Japan. And with the Japanese surrendering at the end of World War II, the Koreans actually quickly formed their own independent government called the People's Republic of Korea, right? And then less than a month later, after they formed this new government, uh, after being sort of freed from uh, Japan's control, the U.S. immediately invades and uh, invades Korea with 40,000 men and establishes its own uh, U.S.-friendly government, initially called the United States Army Military Government of Korea, which is so like cute, like because now when the U.S. establishes a government in another country, they'll like try to make it seem official and seem like it came from the people. But you know, back here, here you can see they're just they're kind of imperial upstarts <laughs> and and they just go ahead and name it the united states army military government of korea so pretty crazy but uh almost immediately and just to sort of give the background so we have north korea and south korea right that we all know about so the people's republic of korea is the government that eventually became what is now north korea's government and the the government in south korea uh is what you know, the remnants of the United States Army military government of Korea. So so that's the same um, separation there, the same borders, all that all that kind of stuff. So immediately the South, uh, the side that's the U.S. client state at this point, uh, starts carrying out several well-known atrocities across the North. Right. And uh, so these atrocities, such as uh, one of one of the biggest ones was called the Bodo League Massacre, where they they actually took 30,000 local people, not soldiers, like actual people, and gunned them down and buried them in mass graves. And this was done by South Korean uh, soldiers under the supervision of, of U.S. soldiers. And the uh, so South Korean government has actually completely acknowledged this, uh, this event and, other, uh, and many more others like it uh, via uh, the country's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, where they basically have acknowledged all the wrongs of the past and are trying to move forward you know, now that that has been um, acknowledged. And as a side note, this is something that a lot of countries have, or, or they're, I shouldn't say a lot, but several countries around the world have done, right? Places like South Africa, uh, uh, South Korea, but other, other, other places as well. And it's sort of a official national um, acknowledgement of wrongs that have been done because it's with the understanding um, that you can't ever move on from something so negative until um, the perpetrators of it acknowledge it and you know uh, show some sort of uh, condolence, uh, you know, for what they've done, right? And so I really think you know that's something that we could use in the U.S. Um, I know Trevor Noah, who's the host on the Daily Show now, he's from South Africa, and he was saying that was one thing that was sort of different. Uh, in his experience in South Africa and America, he's like, South Africa still has deep, deep racial problems, but at least 
the government came out and admitted, you're not crazy. You know, this actually was happening the entire time. We were undermining you. Um, and only then can you really have a reconciliation, which which I think we, we really need in this country. But that's that's a side note. But getting back to the Korean situation, um, the U.S. is, and so I talked about how this is a particularly brutal war. Um, and the U.S.'s own military history of the Korean War states that, and the reason I'm saying this is because I'm trying to, I think, it's important to understand both sides of any conflict, right? And in the U.S., we only ever hear the U.S.'s story about what's going on over there, which is fine. That's the story they want to tell. But there's 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 multiple people in here, and you never get to hear, okay, well, what's the context of this whole situation, right? And uh, and so, you know, this is why I'm, I'm kind of going into this, and you'll kind of see as we go along here. So um, if you look at the U.S.'s own military history of, uh, the Korean War, they state that they they bombed North Korea so much that they literally ran out of targets and started bombing dams and and hospitals and things along those lines, which, of course, are war crimes um, that the Nazis committed and, and were hanged for. But uh, the U.S. did it. And like I said, they were the only superpower on Earth. So who's going to hold them accountable? And uh, they even go to great lengths to describe the people fleeing desperately as these millions of gallons of water are flooding these communities that they, you know, blow these dams up. Um, and so more than 3 million civilians were killed in the Korean War. And that might be an underestimation. We don't, you know, that it's at least that many. We're not actually sure uh, because of how the country is. It's highly rural and agrarian. Um, but uh, General Curtis LeMay, right? So if we want to hear this directly from the U.S., military's mouth, General Curtis LeMay, who was the head of strategic air command during the North Korean, or I'm sorry, during the Korean War, um, reported, and I quote, uh, we killed off 20% of the population. We went in there and fought the war and eventually burned down every town in North Korea. Right, And that's followed up by Secretary of State at the time, Dean Rusk. We were bombing every brick that was standing on top of another, everything that moved. We had complete air superiority. We were just bombing the heck out of North Korea. And then there was a, another U.S. official, uh, Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas, who visited North Korea in the summer of 1952 and was absolutely stunned. He said that, um, quote, I had seen the battered cities of Europe, but I'd never seen devastation until I had seen Korea. Right. And so, like I was saying, why am I saying this? Because. Americans have moved on. Like most wars, they're not fought on our soil. And once the war is over, all the damage and wreckage is left in some other land. And we just sort of move on with our own, our own thing, right? But this experience, think about it. You would have had to, a comparable experience would be you would be about one in four or one in five of all the people you know, um, one in five of them dies in some conflict. Right. And this is, you know, in the 50s. My mom was born in 1950. She's what, 67 right now, about to turn 68. And so, you know, the, the, these people are still around. This is an ancient history to them. Right. This is the the, the trauma of something like that happening uh, is still with them. And so North Korea is essentially frozen in time at the end of that war. Uh, and let's not forget that that war never technically ended. In 1953, they signed an armistice 
which is not a peace treaty. It's basically a ceasefire. So the conflict is ne- is technically not over. But uh, anyway, think about how dramatic uh, in America, and we in America reacted to 9-11. And for good reason, right? It's a traumatic experience watching thousands of people die on live TV. But, you know, look at the mass overreaction, um, you know, spending thousands of military lives and literally trillions um, of dollars. Uh, I think the last estimate is like four or five trillion, maybe as high as seven, uh, fighting a war that was admittedly started on false pretenses. And so, you know, you know why? Why else? Um, you know what? What? What else came of that? We immediately started stripping our citizens of civil rights, uh, racially profiling Muslims, uh, and the NSA became began recording all our calls and internet activity. Uh, the government basically demands technology companies grant them access to all the data uh, that that they want, and you know now they have guys like uh, this guy Peter Thiel, who's a, a billionaire investor, who I, I think he was uh, one of the early investors in Facebook and a couple of these these other big ones like uh, Uber and and some others. But you know, so he's a, a billionaire investor, and he now he has this company called Palantir, which actually what Palantir is trying to do is create profiles of every citizen based on all the data collected, right? Because the government collects so much data at this point that it's hard to, you know, make sense of any of it, right? So so to the extent that we have any privacy, the privacy that we have is because we're just a, sort of a dot in this giant universe of, of information that they collect, right? But what Palantir is trying to do is take that information and create profiles based on your tendencies in terms of your online activity and other things that they can uh, collect collect about you. So, you know, that's what came out of 9-11, you know, out of a couple of iconic buildings and a few thousand people being killed. Um, and while that reaction exceeded all limits of rationality, I mean, uh, imagine how much further our government might have gone if there was an attack that killed 20% of our population. That would be the equivalent of about of about 70 million Americans dying. So um, I think in any conflict, whether personal or state level or anything you're dealing with, you need to first seek to understand your counterpart and then be understood, right? And hopefully that gives you an appreciation for the sort of collective paranoia that an event like that has on a nation. So, you know, after, after that war, North Korea... Korea essentially cuts themselves off from the world, you know, save a few key allies like China. Uh, And ever since the U.S. has been trying to undermine the regime as a way to gain further control in Asia and really unify the uh, northern part of the peninsula with the U.S. client state in South Korea um, and also uh, the U.S.'s best ally in Asia, which is Japan. So so with that uh, sort of backdrop um, for this whole drama that's playing out right now, unfortunately, over Twitter. Um, then we have to look at, you know, so I talked earlier about how the U.S. portrays North Korea as this irrational, you know, regime that can't be uh, negotiated with, right? That every time we hear about them in the media, people are always saying, oh, you can't negotiate with them. Trump especially is always saying, don't worry about negotiating. You know, they only understand one thing. And so... Um, Contrary to this, you know, that that narrative, while it's popular, is provably false. Um, U.S. intelligence agencies have known for decades 
that North Korea's nu- nuclear program was for deterrent purposes only. I mean, they've even said as much in internal documents uh, and, and even interviews, right? So despite the public portrayal of Kim as a madman, uh, internally, internally, the intelligence community understands that Kim's main objective is, is a deterrent from U.S. invasion and the survival of his regime, most importantly, and then also his country more broadly. So um, this is well understood within the intelligence community and uh, Trump's own director of national intelligence. So the guy over all intelligence agencies in the uh, in the U.S., uh, Dan Coats, actually articulated this very point in an interview he did with um, NBC's uh, Lester Holt at a elite event called uh, the Aspen Institute. So, you know, they'll talk about it in public, um, but these are kind of things that only sort of policy wonks or really political nerds would actually listen to. So they'll kind of just talk about it out in the open, knowing that it's so buried and the media is not going to, they're so lazy, they're not going to go after it. So uh, so he's given this talk um, and, you know, I, I have a clip of it actually, in case you thought I was pulling this out of the air. So Director of National Intelligence, uh, uh, Dan Coates explaining what North Korea's motives are and what's the best course forward uh, for the regime, for the North Korean regime from the North Korean perspective. So give us a listen and uh, we'll come back. And, and in terms of the, the number of options available, uh, publicly we know that there aren't a lot of great options there. And a lot of it is trying to see into Kim Jong-un's head. And that's, the, I, I suspect, the most difficult kind of intelligence, trying to predict someone's behavior. Well, he's demonstrated behavior publicly that uh, really raises uh, some questions about um, who he is and how he thinks and how he acts and what his behavior is. But our assessment has come, uh, has uh, pretty much uh, resulted in the fact that while he's a very unusual type of person, he's not crazy. Uh, And um, there is some rationale uh, backing his actions which are survival, survival for his regime, survival for his country. And he has watched, I think, um, what has happened around the world relative to nations that possess nuclear capabilities and the leverage they have, and seen that uh, having the nuclear card in your pocket uh, 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 results in a lot of deterrence capability. The lessons that we learned out of Libya giving up its nukes and Ukraine giving up its nukes is, uh, unfortunately, if you have nukes, never give them up. If you don't have them, get them. And we see a lot of nations now thinking about how do we get them, and none more persistent uh, than North Korea. All right, so there you have it. Uh, Director of National Intelligence, a guy over all intelligence in the U.S., clearly explaining that Kim is not only not irrational, but in fact taking the most rational course for survival. He mentions in there that Kim's rationale is survival for his regime and his country. You know, so he clearly understands that North Korea's nuclear program is a deterrent uh, after having watched Iraq and Libya give up their WMDs, uh, only to be invaded and destroyed once the U.S. no longer had, uh, had to worry about them having the capability to retaliate. So clearly the intelligence community, despite what uh, is said, you know, over the sort of major news, uh, news waves where they're always talking about he's so unpredictable and, and he's, uh, you know, just just hates us and, 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 and try to portray him as someone who's going to come on the offensive. In fact, their 
if, if the director of national intelligence is saying that their motivation is survival, survival from what, right? If you're trying to survive, something must be trying to kill you. Okay. So, so clearly, um, from what the director of national intelligence is saying, they understand that they understand clearly what North Korea's motives are here. And as I talked about earlier, if they really wanted uh, North North Korea's nuclear program to stop, they could stop it tomorrow uh, by just you know accepting North Korea's uh, <clears throat> you know offer to do so, right? But most people don't know that North Korea has offered uh, has offered to end their nuclear program. But I'll get to that in a second. Um, so what you begin to see is the U.S.'s primary con concern in these places where we have these tensions is to eliminate any deterrent from U.S. aggression, giving them the ability to extend their power and influence. So take uh, this quote from Bush Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld in 2001 in an internal memo. He says, several, and I quote, several of these nations are intensely hostile to the, U uh, to the United States and are aiming to deter us from bringing out conventional or nuclear power to bear in a regional crisis. Universally, available weapons of mass destruction technology can be used to create asymmetric response uh, that cannot defeat our forces, but can deny access to critical areas in Europe, Middle East, and Asia. Asymmetric approaches can limit our ability to apply military power. So you see there what Rumsfeld is talking about is they don't like for these countries to have weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, things along those lines, uh, even though the U.S. has those things in spades, because it presents a deterrent, right? So this is the same. So you see this in Iraq, in Iraq, where uh, Saddam had WMDs. He gives them up. Then they accuse him of having them anyway. And now they invade knowing that he doesn't have weapons to retaliate. Same thing happens in Libya, Ukraine. Um, so... Uh, so this is a repeated pattern. And as Dan Coates, the director of national intelligence, uh, was talking about, North Korea is seeing this around the world and seeing that these regimes that are pressured to give up their weapons of mass destruction, as soon as they do that, uh, they are then invaded because no one has to worry about them being able to retaliate anymore. So, um, so this is a, uh, this is a longstanding principle in the U S in U S foreign policy, although it's not really talked about publicly, internally, um, all at the highest levels, they understand this, uh, that the entire conflict, and this is the same thing that's going on with Iran right now, Iran, uh, which has a treaty to stop the nuclear weapons for the same thing that uh, Korea wanted, which was a non-aggression pact, which they signed in 2015 with Obama. Of course, Trump is now trying to undermine that. Um, but it's the same thing. They didn't want Iran to get it because then that's a, another, that's a deterrent to them doing what they want to do in the nuclear, uh, in, in the Middle East, rather. So now we've established that Kim Jong-un, while not the leader you want at all, isn't irrational or crazy, you know, despite being, sim uh, being simplified and dumbed down, that simplified and dumbed down narrative that we hear on the major news outlets. So, uh, so then what can be done to resolve this issue, right? Well, <laughs> as the title of this, of this episode alludes, we can just accept yes for an answer. Right. So North Korea, through both the Kim Jong-un regime and his father before him, have proposed several times to either freeze or completely end its nuclear program in exchange for a non-aggression pact from the U.S. So uh, here's a clip from uh, Noam Chomsky, who's a renowned scholar and professor at MIT and widely viewed as one of the greatest intellectuals of our time. And he's talking about in this uh, or in this clip, he's talking about, 
you know, our options, what our options are with North Korea to uh, get them to cease uh, developing nuclear weapons. But the real question is, is there a way of, of, of dealing with the problem? There are a lot of proposals, uh, sanctions, uh, uh, big, a new missile defense system, which is a major threat to China, will increase tensions there, uh, 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 military threats of various kinds, uh, uh, sending an aircraft carrier, the Vinson, uh, to North Korea, except by accident it happened to be going in the opposite direction, but we'll forget that. Uh, but uh, these are, uh, uh, those are the proposals, that kind of proposals as to how to solve it. Actually, there's one proposal that's ignored. I mean, you see a mention of it now and then. Uh, it's a pretty simple proposal. Remember, the goal is to get North Korea to freeze its weapons systems, weapons and missile systems. So one proposal is to accept their offer to do that. Sounds simple. They've made a proposal, China and North Korea, propose to freeze the North Korean uh, missile and nuclear weapon systems, and the U.S. instantly rejected it. And you can't blame that on Trump. Obama did the same thing a couple of years ago. Same offer was presented, I think it was 2015. The Obama administration instantly rejected it. And the reason is that it calls for a quid pro quo. It says, in return, the United States should put an end to threatening military maneuvers on North Korea's borders, uh, which happened to include, under Trump, uh, sending of uh, uh, nuclear-capable B-52s uh, flying right near the border. Now, maybe Americans don't remember very well, but North Koreans have a memory of uh, not too long ago when North Korea was absolutely flattened literally by American bombing. There was, there was literally no targets left, and I really urge people who haven't done it to read the uh, official American military histories, the Air Quarterly Review, the military histories describing this. They describe it very vividly and accurately. They say there just weren't any targets left, so what can we do? Well, we decided to attack the, the dams, the huge dams. That's a major war crime. People were hanged for it at Nuremberg, but put that aside. And then comes an ecstatic, gleeful description of the bombing of the dams and the huge flow of water, which was wiping out valleys and destroying the rice crop on which uh, Asians depend for uh, survival. Lots of racist comment, but all with exaltation and glee. You really have to read it to appreciate it. Uh, the North Koreans don't have to bother reading it. They lived it. So, uh, so, so there's Chomsky. And, and what he's alluding to there was uh, in 2005, uh, there were some negotiations between uh, several countries called the, the Six-Party Talks. Um, and in that agreement, uh, it was uh, an agreement reached with North Korea where they agreed to end, completely end, their nuclear program in exchange for uh, a non-aggression pact from the U.S. and uh, a light water reactor, which, which uh, you know, can't be weaponized but can be used for peaceful purposes. And the Bush administration immediately began to try to undermine the deal by dismantling the group that was supposed to provide that reactor, 
uh, to North Korea and also pressuring banks to block North Korea's transactions. Um, and of course, in retaliation, North Korea restarts its nuclear program, right? So uh, then in 2015, Obama rejected essentially the same deal. So you see Trump is really just continuing a longstanding U.S. policy, only his methods are you know, a lot cruder and he sort of lacks the finesse of the previous administrations. But if the U.S. really wanted to end the new, uh, end North Korea's nuclear program, uh, they could end it tomorrow by simply accepting North Korea's proposal to end their nuclear program. And that brings me to the point um, about why North Korea does these missile launches. Um, you know, our media portrays them as coming out of nowhere, like, oh, North Korea just launched another missile. They're provoking the U.S. Well, these missile launches don't come out of nowhere, right? Um, as Chomsky mentioned in the clip, the U.S. has been running joint military drills with thousands of troops um, on the North, uh, with South Korea, the South Korean military, on North Korea's border. And to put a cherry on top, they've been flying nuclear-capable uh, nuclear capable, nuclear capable B-52 bombers on North Korea's border. So when North Korea came out and said, um, uh, like a couple of weeks ago, it was a big headline on all the news networks saying, uh, and here's the quote from uh, their defense minister, uh, we have every right to make, counter, to make countermeasures, including the right to shoot down U.S. strategic bombers even when they are not inside the airspace of our country, right? And so they reported that as a threat from North Korea to the U.S., when actually it was a reaction to the U.S. flying nuclear bombers on their border, right? But they, don't, they didn't put the context around the statement because they're lazy. And so um, that was reported by the Washington Post um, as, as a threat to the U.S. on uh, September 25th. Uh, but what their lazy asses failed to mention was that the, that comment was um, indirect response to, as I was talking about, those bombers, which the U.S. flew on their border on September 23rd, right? So you, the U.S. flies the bombers on the 23rd. North Korea issues this, this issues this statement on the 20 on the 25th, right? But you would have had to go to either the foreign press or uh, some of the you know precious few marginalized media outlets in the U.S. Um, that actually wrote about that in, in depth. So um, you ask your, you have to ask yourself, um, would how would the U.S. react to another country flying a nuclear bomber on our border? Would we just sit back and take that? <laughs> so like, absolutely not. There would be hell to pay. Like we've invaded countries that have never even threatened uh, threatened us or fired a single bullet at a U.S. citizen or military. Uh, personnel. So, you know, if someone was flying a nuclear bomber in our backyard, it'd be all over it, right? It'd be all out war. And um, you have to remember, North Korea is a country that's sensitive to that, right? Because uh, they were basically destroyed before in the not so distant past, right? So everybody, everybody's mother or grandmother remembers this and tells them about this um, and had to grow up with this reality. Um, so it would be akin to another country openly testing out ways to crash planes into extremely high buildings, right? It's, it's a soft spot, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, that's sort of the situation, but to sort of finish up, how does, how does the wild card of Trump fit into the entire picture, right? He makes everything worse, it seems. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, while Trump's sort of pro wrestler style of politics is, 
is uh, certainly a new and unwelcome development. He's essentially, you know, running the same from a policy perspective, running the same playbook as Obama and Bush before him and Clinton before him and uh, the first Bush before him. Right. They all have had this same confrontational uh, stance towards North Korea. Um, And but what's interesting, the interesting part about Trump is he's actually playing it a bit differently uh, from some of his predecessors. He's essentially using uh, what Richard Nixon called the madman strategy. So Nixon liked to uh, he liked to make his enemies think he was crazy so that they might be uh, they might be more willing to acquiesce to the U.S. demands because they didn't know what he would do. Right. He felt like if you thought that, you know, people think being thinking you were unpredictable was worse than uh, than anything. Right. And he's kind of right. Right. Look at Trump. Right. The, the worst part about his whole tenure is how unpredictable it is. Who knows who he's going to offend next or what, uh, you know, what he's going to just try to dismantle next. And that's sort of stressful on a on a society uh, over time. But uh, that's basically the madman strategy. I don't know that Trump is uh, <laughs> is wittingly doing that. Maybe he's just really a madman, which is even scarier. But, you know, it, it seems like he's you know, playing the madman while Rex Tillerson is playing the more calm diplomat who's Tillerson's always saying, hey, let's negotiate. And Trump's saying negotiation won't work. Um, And I think Trump is trying to get two, uh, one of two possible results. Either you scare North Korea to the point where they truly believe the U.S. will attack them so they might be incentivized to give up their nuclear program. Now, this is both highly unlikely, in my opinion, and also the most dangerous strategy because you're just as likely to provoke them into a nuclear conflict. Um, and, you know, this would and now if they did give up their weapons, this would essentially set set up North Korea for the same invasion and re- regime change that we saw in Iraq and Libya and down the line. So um, that's the first option I think he's trying to, to push. The second is I think they want to provoke provoke. North Korea into a war before they have an operational nuclear weapon, right? This is why they're turning it up because North Korea is getting closer and closer. And they know once they have it, the U.S. really can't do very much um, unless they're willing to, you know, accept the dire consequences of that. that. So uh, I think they want to provoke them into a war before they have operational nuclear weapon. And this is why they're flying these planes on their border. They're hoping North Korea takes the bait and panics and fires the first shot which would give the U.S., you know, sort of full diplomatic cover to launch a full-scale attack on North Korea. So that's where we are right now. And I think when you're trying to cut through the BS and understand what's really going on in the world and who really are the aggressors, it's important to just look at the simple facts and see what makes sense, right? Let it slosh around between your ears and see what makes sense. Does this make sense for this country to actually be threatening us? So Uh, If we do a simple analysis of the two countries, it becomes obvious North Korea has zero incentive uh, to threaten or start a war with the U.S. Any war with North Korea would be incredibly costly to the U.S., but it would likely completely destroy North Korea. It would cease to be a country uh, as it is. So uh, to drive home this point, let's look at just a couple of facts about these countries that make um, so we can see if it makes sense for North Korea to have any any. Uh, desire to attack the U.S., you know, just from their perspective. So North Korea has a total GDP, and for non-economists, GDP is basically the entire size of your economy, right? The entire wealth of your economy. North Korea's total GDP, not their military budget, their total GDP 
uh, for their country is reportedly $12.38 billion, billion with a B. Now, the U.S., on the other hand, has a $18.5 trillion, trillion with a T economy. So just a few weeks, uh, just a few weeks ago, matter of fact, the U.S. passed a $700 billion military spending increase, not a not a military budget, a spending increase of $700 billion. Uh, and of course, this went through like 89 to 80, 89 to uh, nine or something like that. Um, of course, there's no debate, right? Anything, if we need something for health care or uh, education or any of the things that that affect our citizenry, we have to have massive debates and, uh, you know, it takes months and months to get anything done. Uh, but if you if you want a military spending increase, just, you know, sales right through no debate. And, you know, when Republicans and Democrats get together like that on anything, you know, it's bad. So uh, but so basically it's 70 billion dollars um, over 10 or 700 billion dollars over 10 years was the increase. So the U.S.'s annual military budget increase of seven seventy billion dollars is several times bigger than the entire economy of North Korea. So if you if you as a country were literally thousands of times poor, poorer than another country, would you want to start a war with them? So then we can do a size comparison. So I, I live in Texas, right? And Texas is approximately six times bigger than North Korea itself. So does that sound like the kind of fight you want to pick? And, you know, if we want to look at one other thing, I'll let you guess on this one. Let's make this interactive somehow, right? Um, so how many nuclear weapons does the U.S. have? Let's just just guess. I'll give you a couple seconds to just guess how many nuclear weapons you think the U.S. has. Just Okay, so the U.S. has over 9,600 nuclear weapons, and those are the ones they tell us about. We know there's all this other stuff that they don't tell us about. So the absolute most that we think North Korea could get their hands on in the best case scenario for them will be about 10. So you're outgunned 9,600 to 10. And you're going to start a war with that country? That doesn't even make sense. That doesn't make any sense, right? So um, this depiction of them as some aggressor to the United States, the, when you look at the tail of the tape, it just it doesn't make sense. It would be It would be like... Um, a mouse trying to fight Muhammad Ali, like trying to provoke Muhammad Ali into a fight. It it makes no sense for the mouse. So, um, so the regime in North Korea, while it has many glaring, glaring, glaring flaws, you know, it's holding it's holding on for its for its survival, right? Kim Jong Un knows there's no scenario where he's removed from office and le- and lives to talk about it, right? And if the U.S. does attack them. Um, they won't just be killing the military. They'll be killing the people in North Korea, uh, just like the U.S. officials bragged about doing the first Korean War. So um, sort of one final thought on this. You know, we hear a lot of we hear a lot of uh, people talk talking about North Korea people starving or citizens in North Korea starving. And that's absolutely the case. But they're starving in part because of the sanctions that the U.S., is you know so fond of placing on its rivals. So you always hear about them putting sanctions on countries. Basically, what they do is shut them out of the banking system. There's a system called SWIFT, which is sort of the international banking system, and you basically shut them out of that so that they can't trade with other countries, uh, things along those lines. So, but these sanctions actually hurt regular people way more than they hurt the leadership, right? They make it hard for the leadership to operate a little bit. But think about it: if there was a food shortage in the U.S. Um, would the president starve? I'm like, no, that's ridiculous. 
Like, the president would get his usual gourmet dinners while the citizens starve. And that's the same thing that happens um, when the U.S. cuts some of these countries off from, um, from the world by not allowing them to trade in world markets and things along those lines. Um, you know, when, when the food trucks stop coming, you know, it's the citizens that suffer more than the leadership. So um, I'm not necessarily saying the U.S. is always targeting the population, but uh, in trying to weaken the regime, they actually weaken the people a lot more. So that's just something to think about. Um, and this also gives gives sort of the added benefit that usually uh, from a U.S. policy perspective, they're hoping that this hungry population would kind of turn on the leader, which we've seen happen in some countries. Um, and sort of doing the U.S.'s work for them in terms of regime, in terms of regime change. So, um, but that's not likely to happen with the North Korean population because, as we talked about, this is a population that's so traumatized. Um, they're more scared of the outside than they are of the inside, even though the inside is so horrible. Um, so there you have it. It's just another bad situation that Trump is making even worse, uh, and we'll just have to hope that it doesn't turn into a war because. War with North Korea would be devastating for the world. It really would be. And, um, you know, that's sort of the end there. But I, I just wanted to sort of do this episode because I just keep hearing this thing about North Korea and then portraying them as attacking us when it clearly does not square with with reality. And it doesn't square with what U.S. policy, uh, foreign policy makers are saying um, amongst themselves. So I kind of wanted to bring that to light. So hope you guys enjoyed that. Continue showing, the, uh, sharing the show. Like I said, I'm going to try to get this on a weekly schedule and stop being lazy uh, and get this out to you guys. Uh, next time I'm thinking about doing something on climate change, I don't know. Uh, I might do a different topic, but we'll see. With Trump, you know, it's, it's something new every day. So um, with that said, hope you all enjoy y'all week. Thanks.